Presenting this month's special series, Focus on Allergy. Allergy season is in full swing. From asthma to food allergies, ReachMD is keeping you up to date with the latest in allergy medicine. You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Hot Topics in Allergy, presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Your host is Dr. Todd A. Marr, Director of Pediatric Allergy Immunology at Gunderson Lutheran Medical Center in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Childhood food allergies are becoming an increasing concern in the United States. Why and what are the best ways to treat children with food allergies? Joining us to discuss diagnosing and managing childhood food allergies is Dr. Scott Sischerer, Associate Professor of Pediatrics and a researcher at the Jaffe Food Allergy Institute at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. Welcome, Dr. Sischerer. Thank you for inviting me. So the CDC recently released a study that that demonstrated an 18% increase in food allergies among American children over about the past decade. Why is this happening? Why are food allergies increasing? Well, you know, it was great to see that the CDC came out with that information because for many years now, studies that we and others have been doing have been showing an increase. And there isn't one quick answer as to why this increase might be happening. The explanation that I've generally given is that we're seeing a general increase in allergic disease. So, you know, what are the allergic diseases? It's not just food allergy, but it's also things like asthma, allergic rhinitis or hay fever, and also atopic dermatitis or eczema. And so there have been studies showing that all of these different allergic diseases have been on the rise in the past few decades. We had done some studies looking specifically at peanut allergy, and we did a telephone survey type of study of self-reported peanut allergy. We did the study first in 1997 and repeated the exact same study in 2002 and had for children, a report of 1 in 250 with a peanut allergy back in 97, increasing to 1 in 125, or a doubling when we repeated that just five years later. And there were studies from the UK with essentially the exact same numbers over the exact period of time. So, you know, one thought is that there's just a general increase in allergic disease and that food allergy is part of that increase, and it just hadn't really been tracked as well as asthma, eczema, and hay fever. There are also some food-specific explanations for this. Peanut allergy has been targeted a lot because it's such a prominent allergy with regard to its severity, with the fact that people don't necessarily outgrow a peanut allergy as young children are more likely to outgrow a milk or an egg allergy. And so people have have asked, you know, is there something about peanut that makes it account for this increase? Are we processing peanut differently, for example, in Asia? They boil or fry their peanuts, and they seem to eat almost as much as we do in the U.S., and yet they appear to have less peanut allergy than we do. There may be something in the roasting process or in making peanut butter that makes it more easily seen by the immune system and more easy for the immune system to attack it. So for the general practitioner who's listening, when should they suspect a food allergy? What should be those red flags that go up to make them think, ah, maybe this could be a food? I think about the suspicion of a food allergy in two categories. One is the sudden acute allergic reaction, and the second is chronic disease that could be attributed to food allergies. So let me take the first one I mentioned first. You have an ingestion of a particular food, a particular meal, and have usually within minutes, usually within 20 minutes, rarely beyond an hour, the classical sudden allergic reaction symptoms affecting the skin or the gut, for example, urticaria, hives, angioedema, occurring soon after a meal, gastrointestinal symptoms, vomiting, diarrhea, 
breathing symptoms, wheezing, throat tightness, respiratory distress, mouth itch as well. And of course, if it were anaphylaxis, there could be multiple organ systems affected and of course also the cardiovascular system. So any of these sudden allergic reactions occurring in proximity to a meal, that's going to raise some red flags and probably bring your patients to you thinking that maybe there was a food allergic reaction. You get to ask a lot of questions to try to define what happened. The second category are these chronic diseases that may be triggered by many different things and may have a long laundry list of differential diagnoses. However, certain classic situations may make you think more about food allergies. So the biggest one is chronic atopic dermatitis that's moderate to severe. So a variety of studies have shown that children with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis uh, about a third of those children are going to have a food allergy. There's a bit of controversy as to how much the chronic ingestion of a food may be playing a role because there, there are many things that trigger eczema, and it's usually not just foods, but about a third of the children with atopic dermatitis are found to have food allergy, and for many of them, removing the appropriate culprit food from the diet will help in their skin care management. The second type of chronic complaint that you may attribute to food allergy are the gastrointestinal symptoms. And so there are several different varieties of these. Pediatricians are familiar with the breastfed infant who has mucousy bloody stools, and uh, that proctocolitis syndrome is often associated with maternal ingestion of milk. A child may have a dramatic form of vomiting and diarrhea, either chronically or occurring about two hours after the ingestion of a meal. And this progressive vomiting, diarrhea, leading in many cases to acidosis even, and failure to thrive when it's chronically ingested. This food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome is another version of a chronic symptoms that could be attributed to food. Another illness that we're seeing more of these days are eosinophilic gastroenteropathies, eosinophilic esophagitis. These are more commonly boys who are presenting around age 10 who often have an allergic disposition already identified but are experiencing reflux symptoms that are especially characterized by dysphagia, that food may even become impacted in the esophagus, and it's associated with eosinophilic inflammation of the gut, in the case of eosinophilic esophagitis, of the esophagus itself, reducing motility. Treatment with antacid medications doesn't really help these children, and ultimately diet will resolve or dietary changes, although it's hard to find the culprit foods, but once they are determined, the dietary changes will resolve this for about 95% of the individuals who have an allergic eosinophilic esophagitis. So those are the two general categories, these sudden reactions and chronic symptoms. So let's talk about the sudden reactions for a minute and how to make the diagnosis in those patients specifically where they, they've had those sudden reactions to foods they're presenting to your office. How do you make that diagnosis of food allergy? So the listener is probably expecting me to start talking about allergy skin testing and blood testing, but that's probably the wrong first answer. Answer. In fact, I would emphasize that it is the wrong first answer. The history is really the right answer in terms of getting to the heart of, was this a food allergic reaction? And if it was, what might be the culprit foods? You know, if someone is ingesting peanut every day and then has some hives, you'd have to ask yourself, gee, I, I heard that peanut is such a big problem, but gee, did they really become allergic to it when it's been a solid part of their diet? That prior probability in that scenario makes it actually less likely that peanut would have been the problem. So you have to say, you know, is this even allergy? If it's the viral season and other people in the practice are having hives, 
you know, the family may be very quick to think that these hives must be from a food, whereas you may have the advantage of being able to say, well, look, there was a fever, there was some sore throat. You know, these are probably virally induced hives and maybe have not even go much further thinking about foods. But if there is a, a reaction with these various symptoms I mentioned earlier, you really want to try to focus the family or individual on what exactly was eaten, what components of the foods that were eaten might most likely have triggered this. And again, that detailed history will be focusing on, you know, what were the side ingredients even of the meal. In some cases, even exercise can make a food that was previously tolerated become more of an allergen. Ingesting alcohol with a meal or having aspirin with a meal might make certain foods that were tolerated before cause an allergic reaction. But most commonly, what we're trying to do is focus on what were the ingredients and what's new and most of the food allergic reactions are from rather short list of common triggers. So you have in the back of your mind as a physician, milk, egg, wheat, soy, peanuts, tree nuts, fish, and shellfish as being, and to some extent seeds, as being the most common triggers. If you have a young child, milk, egg, wheat, soy, and peanut are higher on that list. And, you know, if that was the first several times they were ingesting it, that's going to go way to the top. If you have an adult who's had a sudden allergic reaction, you're going to be wondering perhaps more about some less often used spices, for example, or less commonly ingested foods from that particular meal. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Marr, and joining me to discuss diagnosing and managing childhood food allergies is Dr. Scott Sischerer, Associate Professor of Pediatrics and a researcher at the Jaffe Food Allergy Institute at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. So one of the questions I think, Scott, that would come up would be, well, should the provider just challenge that patient to the food in the office? There are several diagnostic maneuvers that could take place after a careful history. And so if you have your potential culprits and you're talking about a sudden allergic reaction, usually the body is making IgE antibody to the specific culprit. So my first pearl message perhaps is to make sure that when you're thinking about testing, so in the primary care setting, you may not have allergy skin testing, which as an allergist I have available to me. If you feel that you're pretty sure where this reaction stemmed from, you might order a specific IgE to that particular trigger or if you've narrowed it down to a couple of things, you might test for those. And if they're positive, it may be that your careful history with the positive test confirms that that is indeed an allergen and needs to be avoided for that person. And then it brings on management discussions about avoidance and treatment of an allergic reaction. However, sometimes it's not so clear. I would encourage not to do panel testing, meaning that sometimes you're faced with a one checkoff box and you get back you know, 20 or 30 different foods that are tested for IgE. The test is quite sensitive, but without thinking about the history, you could end up with lots of positives that may be irrelevant and are foods that could be eaten. In other words, this is a person who has sensitization, makes IgE to some foods, but can eat it with no clinical problem at all. And in atopic individuals, you will often find that type of scenario where they test positive to things that they could eat anyway. So you really have to put together history with the test results. So once you've done that, you may be done, but if you're not done, then the other issues that we might bring in for the person with a sudden allergic reaction would be what we call a physician-supervised oral food challenge or feeding test. Now, I think that that's more in the bailiwick of the allergist. What we do in that case is we make sure from the history and the test that we're not quite so certain that the particular culprit food is indeed the culprit, and we will feed under supervision, sometimes by hiding the food in another substance so the individual is not 
scared and biased, that they may have some anxiety reactions that are hard to interpret whether they're reacting to food or not. So we may, quote unquote, blind the challenge or even double blind placebo control, the feeding test, to ensure that we're on a level playing field and then gradually let the person ingest the food under supervision with emergency medications available and see if they actually react or not. If they tolerate it, we make sure that they tolerate a full-size meal portion of the food in its typical form. And if they've tolerated that, then we've excluded that particular food as a culprit. We may have to look back and say, you know, what other foods were there or was there another explanation? So you won't get any arguments from me that generally for someone who's food allergic and, and the provider is thinking this is a food allergy, they may want to do a RAS test or cap as you mentioned, but referral to an allergist is probably way up on that list of what you should do next to get the expert involved. You know, I might be biased as an allergist to say this, and especially as an allergist that specializes with food allergy, perhaps, but, you know, I spend a good hour with patients after a diagnosis is secured to discuss all of the management issues, and we certainly don't want someone to be avoiding a food that they don't need to avoid. It's a huge lifestyle change, and we certainly don't want to send them off thinking that the diagnosis was made and end up that they have a reaction because, really, the correct trigger food wasn't identified. So, it can be a tricky process, and when we're talking about especially these life-threatening types of sudden allergic reactions, we want to make sure we got it right. So generally then, for the listeners, what would be involved in the management for somebody with those life-threatening type food reactions? Unfortunately, today, we don't have a cure. We are working on that. But in the meantime, it's all about education for avoidance, which is multifactorial. And for people who have a potentially anaphylactic type of food allergy, having self-injectable epinephrine available and understanding how to use it and when to use it, those are the keys to keeping a person with a food allergy safe. What about outgrowing a food allergy? Can that occur? For foods such as milk, egg, wheat, and soy for children, for young children, uh, those are typically outgrown. And for the most part, from studies mostly from a while back, the general statistics that are given are that by school age, by age five or six, about 85 to 90 percent of the children have outgrown their milk, egg, or wheat, or soy allergies. Now, there have been a couple of more recent studies out of a referral center showing a much slower rate of resolution of milk and egg allergy than what I just mentioned, but it is a referral center where um, people with food allergies are, are being sent, so that could be somewhat biased. But even within that, those studies that came out of Johns Hopkins, the message still was that the children, although older, were still outgrowing milk and egg allergy even into the teenage years. So there's hope. Now, the old story on peanut allergy was a dogma that if you have a peanut allergy, you just have that for life and will not outgrow it. However, there have been quite a number of good studies now showing that, at least among younger children under age two, about one in five will outgrow their peanut allergy by the time they are school age. So again, we don't want to close the book on this. It's possible to outgrow a peanut or tree nut or fish or shellfish allergy as well. So I want to thank my guest, one of the leading experts on food allergy, Dr. Scott Sisher from Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. Dr. Sisher, thank you for being our guest this week on Hot Topics in Allergy. Thanks again for the invitation. You've been listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD XM160. This show has been presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For more information on the ACAAI, please visit acaai.org. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Allergy. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com. 
Free CME on ReachMD is now easier. Link to ReachMD's free custom application for your iPhone at ReachMD.com.